Welcome to the Love, Sex and Intimacy podcast for women who want to experience intimate relationships and sex that are pleasurable and passionate, happy, thriving and deeply fulfilling. With my very special guest experts guiding lights and pioneers in their specialist areas, we'll be breaking down the myths, exploring the difficult stuff, the good stuff and seeing what's possible for love, sex and intimacy at this time of rapid change. In these candid and intimate conversations, I'll be bringing you the best of sex and relationship education, full of practical ways to support and inspire change in your intimate life. I'm your host, Sarah Rosebright. Whether you're curious about what's possible or you're already committed to exploring, I'm so happy you are here. Welcome to today's podcast and today I'm joined by holistic sexuality teacher Sherry Winston where we're going to explore women's anatomy for pleasure and arousal. We're going to chat about why that matters, how to cultivate the skills to become an expert in your own pleasure and I'm sure we'll get chatting about much more. Thank you so much for making time today and I'd love you to tell my listeners something about you and, and what you do. Well, thank you for inviting me, and it is truly my pleasure to be here, and I appreciate that you're granting me this opportunity to share my, my mission in life, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> which is um, really about empowerment around sexuality, and um, uh, I came to where I am now as a holistic sexuality teacher from a sort of interesting path. I started out in the world of birth. I I'd been a massage therapist. I became a massage therapist when I was like 20 and I was interested in midwifery. I had a pregnant client. She invited me to her home birth and that was it. It was the, the heavens opened up and there was my path. I have a calling to be a midwife and um, I became a childbirth educator and I apprenticed with midwives and then I decided to get legal, which in the U.S. means you have to go uh, to nursing school and get a bachelor's degree and your RN, which I didn't really want to do. I didn't really want to be a nurse. I wanted to be a midwife, but that's what I had to do. And then after that, you go to school for a few more years to become a certified nurse midwife and gynecology practitioner. So I did all that and I was teaching childbirth classes the whole time I was doing all of those things. And uh, sort of on a parallel path to birth and women's health, I was learning all of this amazing stuff to help women feel empowered, you know, like how to give an empowering pelvic exam, for example, things like that. I had wonderful teachers. I was very blessed. Anyway, so there I am um, with all these initials after my name, you know, working as a midwife. And I came across this book called New View of a Woman's Body. And it described and had illustrations of parts of female genital anatomy that I had never heard of. If you'd asked me before I read the book, I would say, <laughs> I'm an expert at this stuff. I've studied this anatomy extensively multiple times. I own the equipment. I, <laughs> I, I know, I know it's there. So I was really shocked. When this book talked about things like vestibular bulbs, that had me going, go what? The where? So I checked it out on myself. Um, and in order to do so, you have to go through the journey of arousal. Mm -hmm. 
because we're talking here about parts that are made out of erectile tissue. So you have to find them and feel them as they change and become engorged. So I did that. And I still remember sitting there looking in the mirror at myself going, what? How, how did I not know this was here? How did I miss this? And um, it, it was really just kind of blew the, the doors off of my brain. And I started wondering if I, if I've missed this, which now that I see them engorged, they're so obvious, what else are we missing? Mm -hmm. And I started what I now call the hunt for buried pleasure and looking in all different places for all the parts that were missing from our images and our mental maps of female genital anatomy. So meanwhile, I'm teaching classes and I started teaching a class about the genital anatomy. And um, that just was, has been a cornerstone of my work ever since. I will say along with that, um, I'd been teaching women, you know, how to have as amazing births as possible. So I was teaching them about using their breath and sound and their pelvic floor muscles and affirmations and imagery. I was teaching women all of this stuff. And after doing that for about 10 years, literally I was around 30, I had an epiphany where I realized I'd actually been training myself to have better sex. So I'd been, I was aware that I, it was easier to become aroused, that it was easier to have orgasms, that I started to be able to have more orgasms and orgasms in different uh, situations. You know, like I learned how to have orgasms with intercourse, which was not my experience when I started and is not the experience of most women, frankly. Anyway, so that's all going on. I realized I've been training myself. And then I started studying sexuality more and going to classes about Tantra and studying Western, you know, sexological research. And, um, and I was doing all that at that point, thinking it was so that I could have even better sex and that my partners would have a better time. And I started learning stuff I was able to bring into the world of birth. Wow. And then I started to realize it's all one thing. This isn't two separate things. This is one interconnected integral system and it's not just the sex and the birth it's the bonding and the emotional attachment and started really seeing how this was this beautiful integral model that of of who we are and how we are and how we're wired and how everything works and so when I retired from birthing babies um, I was having pretty great sex at that time so I added a class for women about how to have better orgasms. And then all my guy friends were like, well, we want to come to the class. I'm like, you can't go. It's just for women. And I'm like, all right, I'll teach a class for you guys. So I started teaching class for men about female sexuality. And then I started teaching a class about communication, erotic communication, and on and on and on. And that blossomed into my second calling. And uh, I became a holistic sexuality teacher. And then I wrote books about all that stuff. <laughs> And here I am. 
Wow, fantastic. And you wrote my, you know, your book, Women's Anatomy of Arousal, The Secret Maps to Buried Pleasure. That's the most recommended book that I have um, recommended over the last 10 years in my practice by far. And mm. when it came out, I remember just reading it and just being in this like, this is the book I've been waiting for, but I didn't even know it. <laughs> and it's just an incredible book. Thank you. I'm I'm so proud of it. I think that um, I hope that one day it isn't a secret anymore. <laughs> that everybody knows and that our healthcare providers know and our, our sex educators and our midwives and, and just every every woman and everyone who loves to please women, just that everybody knows. Mm. It, it'll be like, of course, women have all that stuff. Yeah, I know how it operates and how to make it happy. Mm. So that's, that's my mission is really to get this information out there because I know for myself and all of the students I've had and readers of my book or people who've attended classes, um, once my mental map and my actual body were congruent, mm -hmm my experience of my body, of my sexuality, pleasure, arousal, orgasm, everything um, was just like a quantum leap into this other dimension. Yeah. Once all that was there. Yeah. So that's what I want for everyone. Wonderful. And you've done a huge, huge contribution to that already. And, and I know it continues to grow. So why do you feel we don't know about this. Tell, tell me some of, of your, the history of this, because I know you write about that in the book. I do. I write mm. a fairly short version of it. Although if you want a longer version, there's a book called The Clitoral Truth mm. by Rebecca Chalker, who was one of the original women who was part of the group that wrote New View. So a hero of mine. And <laughs> she has a, a much more extensive uh, chapter on the history of <clears throat> where we are and how we got here but in the, the shortest version first of all everything I talk about was discovered somewhere along the line and then vanished mm. so there's a whole interesting story here about um, how we as, as people started understanding human anatomy um, whether uh, people were allowed to dissect cadavers, mm -hmm. so that was forbidden for a long time. Then when you finally could do it, you only really had access to male cadavers. Okay. So, and then how, how were women seen and valued? Um, if women are not valued, why would we study female bodies? And the assumption was made was the male body is the norm and females are some defective version of that. The irony being that uh, in utero, when we're embryos, the female is the default. Mm. We're actually the baseline. <laughs> and <clears throat> the male body is uh, something of a variation of the female body. Um, so the other piece of this is the attitude towards women's sexuality. So without going through the whole arc of history, but again, just a really short version, women were considered to be the sexier of the two genders if we go back more than a couple thousand years. If you'd ask people then who's got a higher libido, who wants sex more, they'd said women. And of course, we also were in many places and many times considered to be kind of dumb, <laughs> stupid, childlike, um, and slutty. 
<laughs> right? And and um, men were logical and rational and kind of closer to God and above all that earthly bleeding body things that women do. Um, where that got to in the Victorian times was this idea that women, I should say upper class white women, because in that time that was what mattered, um, were considered not to have any libido at all. They had no sex drive, they got no pleasure from sex, hence lie back and think of England, that you had sex with your husband because it was your duty to him, of course, because he owned you, um, your duty to your country and your duty to God to make babies. And that's all we were there for was to make babies. Interestingly enough, women, poor women, women of color, they were still sluts. Those were the women who could be prostitutes and could be your mistress, um, uh, but you know, not your wife, not your sister. Um, again, this is a very classed culture. But what's interesting is at that time in the anatomy illustrations, all the pleasure parts had gone missing. Why would we have pleasure parts if we didn't have pleasure? They just, so they went away. So there's this really interesting story around how things got lost, things got misunderstood, uh, mistakes were made, and then that was taught, and then everybody believed it. <clears throat> Some things were censored on purpose, I'm sure. <clears throat> so anyway, we've been on this journey to get stuff back. Um, what we got back first was the clitoris. Ironically, though, not even the whole clitoris, just the head of the clitoris. Mm. And I'll tell you, books like The Joy of Sex, which was this famous breakthrough book about sexuality that originally came out in the 70s. The first edition doesn't even mention the word clitoris. Wow. So then books like Our Bodies, Ourselves came out and they focused on the clitoris as the seat of female pleasure and where our attention should be going. But that's just the, the, the tip of the volcano. <laughs> and so we're still missing most of the rest of the structures. What we've also gotten back sort of somewhat is what people call the G-spot, which of course is named after the man who discovered it. He doesn't have one and um, he describes it incorrectly. And he doesn't actually understand what the structure is. Interestingly enough, there's a woman gynecologist who, who decades before described exactly what the structure was, um, but nobody paid much attention, <laughs> right? So we're getting back what's actually the urethral sponge, which is a, a tube of erectile tissue that surrounds the tube of the urethra that is accessible through the roof of the vagina internally. Um, and somewhat externally as well. But we still have a lot of debate about whether that really exists or not. Um, the issue of course is that uh, it's, it's erectile tissue. So when it's not engorged, it barely does exist, right? There's nothing much, there. you go in and feel inside the roof of your vagina, it all feels like vagina, yeah. <laughs> right? It's only when it's engorged that you can start to feel it. And so people are missing this basic concept about the female erectile network, which is many of these structures um, you won't find and feel until they're engorged. 
And so what I'm hoping to get back into or, or recover and reclaim and, and, you know, help people understand is that when it comes to erectile tissue, which is basically the stuff penises are made out of almost entirely, um, women have just as much of that tissue as men do. So a female body has an equivalent amount of erectile tissue to a male body. It's just arranged differently and, um, and it operates in some ways the same and in some ways differently as well. Until we understand those differences, we're not going to really be able to, um, if you own this equipment, not be able to access our full erotic potential, which is vast, enormous. Um, and if we partner with people who have this equipment, we're not going to be able to assist them and help them and, and, uh, and um, you know, give, we don't really give anybody orgasms, but, you know, help promote the orgasmic experience, as it were. So that's where we are now. Yeah, wow. And so you talked about the clitoris, the G-spot. What, um, share with us how the full extent of this erectile tissue and also how does it differ from male bodies and, and as well as what's similar? I'd love to hear more about that. Well, I will say that um, uh, I will describe it, but I'm a visual person. So if you need to see images, go to my website and read my blogs where I've posted some of my anatomy drawings so you can see the visual that goes along with this. So that's intimatearts.center.com, intimatearts, plural, center, spelled the American way, .com. Okay, go or there the you can <laughs> or get the book or the online course and, and, and find out what's there and then do your home play assignment, which is to find it on yourself if you own the equipment to uh, go along with a partner and discover it on their body if you don't own the equipment. And if you partner with women, it's extra credit home play assignment, you get to do both. Okay, so what, what's there? So the erectile network is composed of structures that are connected but separate from each other. And that's one way it's different from a penis. A penis is basically big tubes of erectile tissue. So with a penis, you can't have the head of the penis be hard and the shaft be soft. They just don't work that way. It's, it's a unit. So either the whole thing is soft, the whole thing is semi-hard, the whole thing is hard all together. With uh, female bodies, we've got these discrete different parts. And so we can get aroused and have orgasms with just part of our network activated. Mm -hmm which most of us are doing or we're doing because we don't know the other parts are there. So they're not getting stimulated. So they're not getting engorged. So we can get um, a very different experience of arousal and orgasm. We can get like a, a piece of it. Like it'd be like singing and playing the guitar. It can be wonderful. It's beautiful. But when you get a whole band playing, the sound you can make is going to be bigger, vaster, different, deeper. And when you've got the whole orchestra online, wow, right? So, mm -hmm. so there's nothing wrong with having an orgasm with clitoral stimulation. There's, it's not like that's wrong or bad. It's just understanding that's just one path and it isn't using all of the circuits that happen when the entire network is engorged. 
So the female erectile network, it starts with the clitoris. We'll start with the things that we know already, but the clitoris actually has three parts. So the part that we mostly know about that either sticks out a little bit or is covered up by the hood is the head of the clitoris. A remarkable structure. It has got more nerve endings, more sensitivity than any other part in a male or female body. So right away, that's, it's, it's a remarkable structure. But it's tricky because it can be overstimulated as well as understimulated. So um, the head of the clitoris is the jewel in the crown of this network of structures. The clitoris has a shaft so that if, if you were feeling or looking at the head just above it, more towards the head of the body, is the shaft. And the shaft is under the hood. And it's a semi-mobile structure. So you can kind of rub the skin on top of it and roll the shaft under your fingers. Um, and both of these parts are easy to feel whether they're engorged or not, the head of the clitoris and the shaft. The next part of the clitoris are called the legs. And the legs are like the legs of a wishbone. They're long and skinny and they actually um, start at the top of the shaft and then they branch. And the bottom of them is pretty deeply buried under tissue so that you're not going to be able to feel the bottom of them directly. But the top of the legs, the part just, just off of the, of the shaft there, uh, for most people, you're not going to feel when they're not engorged. I'll say for me on my body, I only feel them at high level engorgement. I still remember again, the first time I discovered them and went and did my homework. And again, I'm feeling everything when I'm not engorged at all. I'm going, there's nothing here. I don't know what that book's talking about. That's just crazy. <laughs> and then I play with myself and I get nicely engorged. And I go back again. I'm like, huh, maybe. And then I play with myself more. I get really aroused, really engorged. I go back and I'm like, oh, there they are right? I can feel them. Oh my gosh, there they are. Um, and so again, that's why it's important to do your home play at stages and you can't really see them. You can feel them, but you can't really see them. So those are the legs of the clitoris and uh, they're um, uh, the third part of that same structure. Now, the other things I'm going to talk about, some people say the whole, everything of all the erectile network is the clitoris. Mm. I'm going from a more anatomical perspective, which looks at things like how did the structures form embryologically? Okay. And so the three structures I just talked about that I call the, the three parts of the clitoris embryologically are the same, uh, come from the same tissue. The other structures I'm going to talk about embryologically come from different tissue. So I think they're not part of the clitoris. Po political, you know, sort of naming. So what else do we have? So the vestibular bulbs. We've got these two big wads of erectile tissue that are under the labia, one on each side. The bottom of them is fat. So it's like an upside down comma. The bottom is fat and the top is thin. And the bottom is on either side of the vaginal opening. The thin part at the top connects to the shaft of the clitoris. Now, the thing about the vestibular bulbs is once you find and feel them, 
you will know that this is true, right? You, <clears throat> you will be, <laughs> you'll be a believer. <laughs> 100%. Because once they are really puffed up, they're quite visible. Um, you will feel them, obviously, but you can see them underneath the labia bulging up and out. And um, again, when I first saw mine, I was shocked that I didn't know they were there because now they're so obvious once you see them. You're like, how did I miss this? Well, I missed it because it wasn't in my mental map. I missed it because I wasn't playing with that part of my anatomy. My partners weren't playing with it because we didn't know there was anything there to play with. So they weren't getting engorged. So they were not as big. However, this all starts to make sense also because one of the things I realized was, especially when I was first being sexually active, like most women, I certainly did not have orgasms from intercourse and I did not easily have orgasms with partners. I had no communication skills. They didn't know what they were doing. I didn't know what I was, nobody knew what they were doing. <laughs> but I did know that before we took our clothes off when we were making out, and there was a thigh pressed up against my whole vulva. That was really good. I loved that. And so once I realized the bulbs, all of a sudden I was like, duh, that's why that kind of broad, diffuse stimulation of the exterior part of the vulva felt so good. That was stimulating the bulbs. But then once the clothes went flying, nobody was attending to that tissue anymore and it lost engorgement. And so by the time we got to penetration, there were no big puffy bulbs to make it feel awesome. So get those bulbs puffed up. And that's a great place to start playing, in fact, because you can access them from the exterior of the vulva. You don't have to worry about overstimulating them like the head of the clitoris. And so that's a great thing to get engorged first. And then maybe play with the clitoral shaft. And then when the uh, owner of this equipment or yourself, if it's yours, then go to more direct clitoral stimulation. Because as we get more aroused, sensations changes. So something that would have felt irritating or painful can now be pleasurable when we're in a state of high arousal. So again, why clitorises are so difficult to understand. <laughs> not only are they ultra sensitive, can be overstimulated, understimulated, but the, they change in what they like depending on how aroused you are and how engorged the rest of the network is. All right, so there's more. So um, now we can kind of start going inside the vagina and there's erectile tissue above and below. So above is what we mentioned before, which people are calling the G-spot. It is erectile tissue. If you feel in a state of non-arousal, you're not gonna really find much. It, moderate arousal, you might start feeling it, but really it's at high level arousal that you're going to find and feel that tissue. That's why it's not like a doorbell you ring to get an orgasm. People have this idea that it's like this magic button, I'll just push it and an orgasm will happen. No, it's erectile tissue. It needs to be uh, approached appropriately with, uh, with appropriate timing. Because if it's not engorged when you start playing with it, it's just irritating. It just feels like somebody's rubbing your urethra. It just makes us feel like we need to pee. It's just not fun. 
So meanwhile, um, once it is engorged, then it can enjoy all kinds of lots of stimulation. And in fact, when it is engorged from the outside, you can see the bottom of that ring of erectile tissue. So it's like, it's like a roll of paper towels and the cardboard tube in the center of the roll is the urethra <clears throat> and the um, paper towels themselves are the erectile tissue. And when it's not engorged, it's like you're near the end of the roll of paper towels. It's very small. <laughs> when it's engorged, it's like a brand new jumbo roll. And when it's engorged like that from the outside, you can, if you can find the urethral hole, that little, uh, the little place we pee from, you'll see that whole round ring of erectile tissue, uh, kind of pushing it out and around it. And again, once you see it and feel it, you're like, oh yeah, <laughs> I got that, <laughs> right? They did this very funny study. I think it was actually in England. And they asked women if they had <clears throat> a G-spot, that's how they referred to it. And it, most women said they didn't. And that they're, they're using this as proof that it doesn't exist. <laughs> just because women don't know they have it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means they haven't found it and figured out how it works. So um, meanwhile, uh, there's more. Uh, we also have erectile tissue under the floor of the vagina, what I call the perineal sponge. And the perineal sponge is between the vaginal and anal canals. Um, and the same, <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> And it's the same thing in that um, when you feel around in the floor of the vagina, there's nothing here. Um, but when it's engorged, you're gonna find this big puffy um, engorged uh, pleasure spot in the floor. And if you're doing that, uh, if you own the equipment, you're doing it on your own body, you can use your thumb, put your thumb in and push down. And you probably need to put your thumb in um, to the to the knuckle or beyond to find that erectile tissue. It's not right under the skin of the perineum because Mother Nature's smart. She doesn't want to do damage when we have babies. Right? <laughs> so she tucked it inside so it would be more protected. Now, the thing about all of these structures is when all of them are engorged, you get this, these interlocking, overlapping circuits of erectile tissue. And when you have that, you have the potential for, you know, really accessing your deepest arousal states and your biggest, best orgasms. And again, you don't have to get it all engorged and aroused, but if you do, <laughs> And once you do, you start going, yeah, I might as well. <laughs> I might as well get it all going. Um, you're going to really appreciate how much of a difference it makes. And the other thing I would say is that for most women, for us to get deeply, totally, thoroughly aroused, which means that whole system engorged and our state of consciousness and whole body in a deep trance, arousal trance, right? Arousal is a trance state. It's an altered state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So full engorgement, full deep trance for most women is going to take 30 to 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. And 
remember I was teaching a class and I said that and this woman goes oh my god my husband just went to the bathroom you've got to say that when he gets back (laughs) (laughs) I know I want to pause there for a moment just to breathe and take that in because it just goes so contrary to what we see on the movies and and most of what most women have experienced as well so yeah 30 to 45 minutes and how many women as well feel I'm taking too long and all of these stories that can come up that stop them going there yeah well we have a a couple of problems that cause that one we have this male-centered model of sexual arousal and for many men if not most men arousal is pretty quick Um, and then they have uh, an erection and and then they're ready for intercourse or whatever we're going to do with it Um, For most female-bodied people, arousal takes longer, and and we are not ready for something like intercourse until we've met those criteria of deep erotic trance, full engorgement. And so we are often, uh, I say, like, we're, we're not being a good guardian of our gate because we're going along with like, oh, okay, well, I'm wet which is a sign of early arousal. Uh, he's hard, I'm wet, I guess it's time. Guys are kind of, you know, they're like pulling at the leash. They're like, yeah, let's go, let's go. And so we do, cause we're nice and it isn't feeling awesome. Maybe it feels okay. Maybe it feels a little uncomfortable, um, but if it isn't feeling awesome, it's too soon. And once we start finding our voice and our power around this, and we start educating ourselves and our partners, then everybody understands about how it takes time and what we need to do to get to the place where that's gonna feel amazing. Um, Excuse me. In porn, most of the time, those women have been playing with a vibrator with themselves for half an hour before the camera gets turned on. And people just think, you know, that's how women are They're, you know, but they're not, they've, I wish they'd show the half hour, (laughs) (laughs) give people an idea of what's, what's real for most women. I will add though, that once we learn, uh, you know, mastery of our own erotic instrument, we can get aroused much more uh, deeply and sooner and quicker than that. So we can really develop by using things like our breath and our sound and our pelvic floor muscles and things like that. We can learn how to get, get there quicker, um, which is a wonderful skill set to have as well. Cause sometimes you don't have an hour, you know, if sometimes you have 15 minutes and it wouldn't be great if we could get ourselves going and ready and, and, and have it be awesome that quickly, right? Yeah, absolutely. And this is it. There's so many scripts for all genders about how sex should be and that sort of porn goal model sex. And you're talking about something so different in that mastery and just really being your own sexual guru and really getting to know your body, your pleasure, your buried treasures mm-hmm. and um, find you know your level of mastery. So I'd love to hear um, more about um, for people finding the G-spot area. I mean, because so many people say, um, you know, it's like you said, so people are arguing over whether it exists or not, which is just incredible. Um, and 
like yesterday I was working with a couple and because they hadn't found it, they thought there was something, you know, wrong with them. And I hear this time and time again. And, you know, when I explain to them, you have to be really engorged to find it. They just were like, wow. And there's a lot of misinformation about where it's located, how to find it. So I'd love to hear from you um, share some wisdom on that. I would love to. So first of all, as you said to this couple, um, it's it's erectile tissue. So the best time to play with it is when it is already partially engorged, at least, if not fully, which means um, <clears throat> penetration with anything, fingers, toys, penises, anything, is something that really needs to happen at high level arousal. And after all the parts you can get to from the outside have been thoroughly engorged. And then those inner parts will already be at least partially engorged. So timing is everything in this case. And it's very important to um, be attuned to your own arousal level. Uh, we need to learn what what deep arousal trance feels like. And, um, and again, be that good guardian of our own bodies. And if our partners put their finger inside when we're not ready for it yet, finding the ways to lovingly and gently and, and erotically say, you know, not quite ready for that yet, baby, but I know <laughs> we're gonna get there. Let's do this in step to rest, right? Um, <clears throat> so I think that's, that's a piece of it. I will say every, every woman has this equipment it's standard issue. It's not like some women got it, <laughs> some women don't. And, you know, and it's not like the, the orgasm fairy came over my cradle and sprinkled orgasm dust over me, right? I learned to have orgasms. For women, these are learned skills. Learned how to have them by myself. Learned how to have them with partners. Learned how to have them with different kinds of stimulation. Learned how to have them with intercourse, which is a learnable skill. Um, and the foundation for all of this, though, is having a voice, <laughs> communicating, um, understanding the equipment, understanding how it operates, and then um, um, working with and in alignment with how, how we operate. Uh, the other thing I will say about the uh, urethral sponge is that that erectile tissue isn't just erectile tissue, it's special erectile tissue, even more special than the rest of the erectile tissue because it also contains glands. And those glands are the source of female ejaculate. Um, and this is a whole other topic uh, that people are very confused about and there's a lot of mythology and just incorrect information, but um, <clears throat> that, structure is what in male bodies becomes the prostate gland, which if you know anything about male anatomy is erectile tissue with glandular structures. Same exact thing. And so <clears throat> um, female ejaculation, where you squirt obvious amounts of liquid from the urethra that is not pee, is a learnable skill. There are some uh, women who are what I call natural ejaculators. They just squirt and they always have and they do. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to happen with orgasm. 
um, although it's best, feels best when it does. Um, but for the rest of us who didn't naturally have this ability, it's learnable. And um, understanding also that the these glands that are in this tube of erectile tissue, they create this fluid. And if there's a lot of engorgement, then a lot of the watery part of blood diffuses into the glands, they fill and you get a lot of liquid. If you don't have a lot of stimulation to that tissue, if you don't have an, all that extra blood flow and all that engorgement, those glands still make a small amount of fluid, but it's just a little bit, it's gonna, you wouldn't notice it. So I actually believe all women produce at least a small amount of fluid if you're aroused at all. Um, and if you want to learn how to produce copious amounts and have that <clears throat> um, experience of ejaculation where everything's contracting and squeezing and squirting and it's and expanding the orgasm, um, A, that it's learnable um, and it is worth all the extra laundry because it's it's an amazing experience. <laughs> and I believe that that fluid is antimicrobial. Mm. And I think it's there to help prevent and, uh, and uh, keep us from getting urinary tract infections. Wow. Right. That's why we have glands that produce some kind of protein near our orifices. Mm -hmm. Right. Like think of our mouth, right? We've got tonsils and adenoids and um, glandular structures that are part of our immune system that produce things that help prevent us from getting sick. Not all the time, but but a lot. Now here we've got the urethra, which is a potential portal for bacteria, which most women are aware of because we've had a urinary tract infection or two or 10 or 20 or a lot of them. Um, and one of the ways to prevent it if you're having chronic ones is to learn how to squirt. Mm, wow. I don't have any actual data on this, mm. but I'm sure the data will happen at some point. Um, because it's just, it just makes sense yeah. that that's why we have glands there. Anyway, that's the more about <laughs> more about the urethral sponge and squirting. Wonderful, thank you. And and also, I'm curious to hear about orgasms and uh, penetration as well, because the data says you know around anywhere between 65 70 percent of women don't orgasm through some form of penetration and it's presented yeah. like that's just the way it is and as we know that that isn't just the way it is it's often our lack of understanding of our bodies how we learn to do penetration so I'd love it to and it's a common question I you know get asked so I'd love you to speak to that and and you shared a lot about how that, that just understanding our bodies can inform that but is there anything else around that that's important to share yeah. So again, what you're saying is really important for people to hear because a lot of women feel like there's something wrong with them. And I felt that way when I first started having intercourse, I did not have orgasms and I thought there was something wrong with me. Right. What, what's wrong with me? This is, I was, you know, after all those years of like waiting to do it, <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> the thing, um, I finally did it. And I remember walking home and going, that's it. <laughs> that wasn't fun. 
you know, the stuff we were doing before was way more fun, right? Um, yeah, so the things, some we talked about already, but I'll just recap. Uh, we're having premature penetration. I used to call it an epidemic of premature penetration, but now I'm calling it a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> pandemic of premature penetration. <laughs> so if anything is going into the vagina and it does not feel awesome, it's too soon. Just too soon. Um, so one reason we're not orgasmic is because we're having penetration way too soon. We're not engorged enough. We're not aroused enough. That's number one. Number two is people are having intercourse in a porn style thumping manner, <laughs> right? Like a piston, right? Like bam, 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 you know, in and most of the way out and in and most of the way out. And now think about that erectile network I described. With that kind of in and out banging sort of intercourse, that erectile network isn't getting very stimulated, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> um, now, think about the position, the intercourse position that women are most commonly orgasmic in is woman on top. Now, when we're on top, are we jumping up and down on the penis like a post stick or something? <laughs> no, generally not. What are we doing? We're grinding and rolling our pelvis. That erectile network is in contact with that other body. And so we're getting that kind of stimulation. So once we realize that intercourse that gives us more contact and stimulation is going to be more arousing. And then we can sort of modify and stop doing that porn pounding, or maybe reserve that for the end when we are so aroused that it's going to feel awesome to have that kind of pounding. Um, but save that for, you know, when we're, when we're into it more, uh, especially at the beginning, anything that's um, rocking our pelvises together, using uh, both people using their pelvic muscles mm. to have much more subtle kinds of movements um, and, and exploring and ex uh, all the different positions we can be in where we're gonna get that kind of contact. So that's another thing. So um, the amount of time we've spent getting aroused, the amount of time we spent getting engorged, the positions that we're doing it in. Um, and then also really teaching penis owners how to have some refinement in their movements as opposed to just banging away. Uh, porn is such a bad teacher, <laughs> such a bad teacher. The fact of the matter is if you're sort of staying in contact and rocking together and, and, and kind of doing a, a pelvic dance as it were, in porn, that's not gonna look so interesting. Yeah. Right, you won't see the penis coming in and out. Right? Um, yeah, so really expanding the kinds of movements that we do. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, if we're thinking about things like the urethral sponge, deep penetration is just gonna go right by there. It's not really gonna get it. So even doing 
motions with partial penetration where the penis is just in a little bit or in halfway and then rotating the hips and rocking and rolling, you're going to get amazing and awesome stimulation. And then at a, at a certain point, really high level arousal, then the deep penetration is going to feel fantastic. Uh, we did not talk about the nerve pathways um, or the uterus, which is a player in arousal and orgasm. But I will just drop in this little tidbit, which the uterus is a player in arousal and orgasm. Mm -hmm. And at the highest level of arousal, the uterus has actually been pulled up into the body, opening up the back of the vagina, where we've got big trunks of nerve endings. And at that point, pounding, deep pounding can feel awesome. But if there's deep pounding before the uterus has gotten out of the way and you're knocking into the cervix, that does not feel awesome. In fact, that can feel really uncomfortable or painful. And also keep in mind for women who are in their cycling years, that different times of the cycle, there'll be um, uh, more or less presence of the cervix at the back of the vagina. So right before your period, your uterus is low down and when you're bleeding, so at that point, deep penetration might not feel, might not feel good at all. Um, so finding all those other wonderful ways to, to have a penis inside you that don't involve deep penetration can be useful. Yeah, that, that just the variety of pressure, rhythm, depth, all these subtleties. Because I think people feel that to have better sex, it's like, how many new positions can I try? And, and it gets bigger and grander. But actually, the magic is in all those very sometimes small but utterly profound changes mm -hmm. and I sort of say to, 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 to penis owners to use their penis as like a massage wand and how imagining it massaging the vaginal canal and how mm -hmm. that or whether it's fingers and just how that can change the whole experience or just going in a little bit so it's just so much for people to explore so thank you for sharing your wisdom <laughs> in fact Start by using your penis like a paintbrush on the outside of the vulva. Yes. Yeah. Right. And rubbing up <laughs> against now brush. you know where the, the vestibular <laughs> bulbs are and rubbing everything and get to the point where your partner is, is begging you to put it inside. Right. That's the best time to put it inside where, where, when, when as the penis receiver, you're just aching for it. You're just like, please put it inside. Right. Like wait for that instead of, putting it in when she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> All right. I guess it's okay if you put it in now. Like that's not when you put it in. So um, lots of fun things to do with the penis. And I will mention also back to the urethral sponge, the best tool for stimulating that is fingers. Fingers are really where it's at. And, uh, and finally, one other piece, which is uh, female people, have a, at least one orgasm prior to intercourse. Like get yourself going orgasmically even before there's penetration. And, uh, and that will tend to make penetration feel even more awesome. Yeah. And also that sex doesn't, sexual encounters don't even have to end in penetration. And just because, you know, that's the sort of goal that so many people feel they have to head for. And if they don't get there, somehow they've not been successful and or if they haven't had orgasms they've not been right. successful and actually right. some days that might not be just there for all sorts of reasons and absolutely so, 
we can paint the picture of how we want our sexual encounters to look and we get to choose mm -hmm. and you know I think what you said about communication is just so important and having this dialogue and oh that's not feeling so good right now can we do this instead or I'm not ready for that and just building that confidence is just uh in the communication so key right and I'll say two more things see if I can remember both of them one mm -hmm. we also have this model of arousal which is like it's like running up the stairs and you know or like running up to a high dive and then you're, you dive off for your orgasm and you're done instead think about it like dancing on the stairs where maybe you get a little aroused and and then maybe a little bit more and then maybe you're at medium level and then you kind of let it drop back down and then you get really aroused but you don't have an orgasm and then you drop it back down and when you do that playing around with your arousal you know getting fast getting slow going hot getting cool mm -hmm. when you play like that your arousal trance gets deeper and deeper and again, that's when you're going to get the biggest and the best. So instead of being like run up the stairs and jump off the high dive, play, dance, be on the journey and don't be so focused on the destination. Okay, now there's one more thing I wanted to say. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, communication. Yes. So I think we need three kinds of communication with our partners. So yes, there's the things we say when we're in bed together and we are in a session, a pleasure session. How do we communicate what we want, what's working, what's not working? So that's our erotic communication. And if we were playing a duet with another musician, it would be like we're jamming and occasionally we're like, hey, let's, you know, we make some comments. But talking isn't usually the focus of the jam session. Sometimes, though, we want to practice a skill with a with our musician partner. And so setting up times, I call them playpen, some people call them a sandbox, time and space for playing a learning game. Um, this is the same way with another musician, be like, let's practice this riff. Let's well, let's let's get this down. Right. And so we might practice giving erotic feedback so that when we're in the actual lovemaking, we're skilled at the erotic feedback because we practiced it in our rehearsal session, a practice session. And then the third is sitting down with our clothes on and talking about our sex when we're not having it, we're not practicing, we're not jamming, we're just talking about it. What's working? What's not working? And understanding these can be very challenging conversations. We don't have practice, we don't have models in how to do it. Um, I always tell people, start with what's real for you at that moment, which might be something like, um, I'm feeling nervous about having this conversation. I've never done it before. We've never done this, but I think it's important. I think it will help us. And I'm, I, but I'm, I'm feeling weird and anxious, right? Obviously you want to, you know, make a time when you and your partner have, you know, not when they're running out the door in five minutes, right? But you're like, would this be, let's, let's do have one of these conversations. Like maybe you've just heard us talk about it. You're like, that would be a good idea. So you don't ambush your partner. Maybe you say, well, I heard this idea about having a conversation where we, you know, set aside an hour to just talk about our sex life and what's happening and what's really working and what could be better. And then you, you do that. And so I think that's something, again, that we never see modeled. We don't see any of this modeled. Yeah. <laughs> right? Not in porn. 
Um, and where else do we learn? Not in, not in movies or sitcoms. <laughs> yeah. Thank yeah. you. I really love those three models of communication um, and those three areas are all just equally important. And I would love to ask a couple more questions around going back to our anatomy of why is this important for our actual health as well, that we have this knowledge. Um, and also, you mentioned you gave some great uh, home play for people to go and explore, to really explore their anatomy in the mirror and to look at engorgement and different things. But there may be some people listening for who that feels too much. And um, there may be women listening who maybe are experiencing pain or numbness and different things. So even to just touch there right now, even to look in the mirror may be too much. So I'd love to hear some of your wisdom for the women listening who are experiencing that. Well, first of all, if we want to grow in this area and heal in this area, it takes courage. Mm -hmm. And I think of that as one of our skills. I, I imagine we've got skills of the mind, body, heart, and spirit, and courage is a heart skill. Mm -hmm. So if a firefighter is running into a burning building to save the baby, they're scared. Of course, they're afraid. They're doing it anyway because you have to save the baby. In this case, you are the baby and the firefighter. And so in order to save ourselves, to grow and to heal, we need to do things we're afraid to do. Courage is a muscle. Our heart is a muscle. Every time you take one small courageous step, it makes it easier to take the next small courageous step. And think of these as small steps. Luckily, you don't have to run into a burning building. You can just take one step. So it might be that you just, with your clothes on, put one hand over your vulva and the other hand on your heart and just breathe and think love thoughts to yourself. You know, whisper sweet nothings to yourself and just breathe and just feel the, the warmth and the love in your heart, in your hand, going into your genitals something as simple as that then at some point you might do that in the bathtub right or the shower or your bed or someplace where you feel safe and warm with your clothes off but just your hand on the outside other hand on your heart think loving loving thoughts um so it can be as simple as that you know and little one little step at a time uh it's taken our whole lifetimes to get wherever we are and all the messages of shame and all the trauma we've experienced and all of our health challenges and life challenges, it's all there in our body. Um, it might be you want to get some help with your healing. Uh, if you've had trauma, you know, find a, a, a pelvic floor physical therapist, for example or somebody who does sexological body work or some other people who do hands-on healing and the good ones will again, work at your pace, right? If not read books, go to workshops, go to classes with people who've been on the healing journey. So many of us have had trauma around our sexuality and our bodies. So find the people who've come out on the other side of that, who've been there and know. Some of the most sexually empowered women I have ever met have been through horrendous trauma and have healed themselves and come out 
so strong, so beautiful, and are now teaching other women how to do that. So get help if you need help. Um, I think the other thing to recognize is that we often have to retrain our brains. Uh, and we can do a really simple little brain retraining where we start with awareness, where we notice a negative thought. Um, and you can like do this separately in a notebook. We replace it with three positives. Like, you know, the thought might be, oh, my genitals are ugh, they're so yucky. And you notice yourself thinking that and you go, my genitals are beautiful. My genitals are sacred. My genitals give me pleasure. And that's it. And then that negative thought comes up again in two minutes. You just repeat your three positives. And we, we start actually reprogramming our brain. Now, here's some, a little magic trick. If we do that when we're in a state of arousal, it's a hundred times more powerful. We're in an altered state of arousal. And so our brains are more susceptible to believing what we tell them. So if in that state of arousal, it doesn't have to involve orgasm, but just getting turned on in that state of arousal, we say, oh, my genitals give me pleasure. My genitals are sacred. My genitals are beautiful. We're going to reprogram way faster. <laughs> if you have a partner, your partner can do that with you. You tell your partner, I have this negative thought, this recurrent negative thought about my genitals, that they're ugly. Your partner now has the opportunity during any, at any time, but particularly when you're, when you're being sexual together to say, oh, your genitals are so beautiful. I love looking at them. They're so gorgeous. They're so sexy. They, they smell delicious. And that is powerful stuff too. So engage our partners, engage ourselves, engage our trance state, find the healers and, um, and take those little steps. And if it seems like a big, big step, you're not ready to take the big step, imagine yourself taking the step without doing it. Just, just spend 10 minutes imagining what it would be like if you took your clothes off and pleasured yourself and looked in the mirror without actually doing it, right? So we've got all these different ways to approach how we go about that healing journey. There's no right way. There's no wrong way. There's only what works for you. There is no right or wrong way to get turned on. There's no right or wrong fantasies. There's no right or wrong lifestyles. There's just finding what works for you. Um, I think that was a two-part question and I answered the second part and I have no idea now what that was. <laughs> <laughs> the first part, I'd love to just finish because this is so important is why that this knowing our genital anatomy is really important for our health. Right, good. <laughs> Glad you remembered. Um, I'll just give a few examples. Yeah. So I had women who are natural ejaculators who had been treated by doctors for recurrent urinary tract infections, up to and including surgery to fix the problem when there was no problem. One example. Um, we talked about how the perineal sponge for most women is tucked pretty deeply inside the body. So during childbirth, if you do have a tear, now I was a midwife for 20 something years and I, uh, attended about, uh, 500 births 
during that time, I cut five episiotomies. Wow. Right? Because to me, an episiotomy is something you do if you have a baby that needs to get born five to 15 minutes sooner. That's what it saves you. Occasionally you do. You have a baby that's going into distress and you want that kid out as soon as possible. In that case, I cut an episiotomy. All the other mamas did not need episiotomies because I was helping them birth slowly and helping them control the, the, the stretching and providing support and hot compresses. I'd say about half those women had no tears at all. And the other half had small tears on the surface of the perineum. I maybe had another five tears that were as big as an episiotomy would have been. What will happen with a natural tear is it's going to go around that erectile tissue. It will not tear through it. Wow. What happens with a woman who has shallow, her, her perineal sponge is closer to the surface and someone cuts a big episiotomy, they can cut right through that. So not only is there going to be bad scarring, but that tissue will be damaged and it will not operate properly again because scarring is scarring. Now there are some things you can do to minimize scar tissue. Um, let's talk about hysterectomy briefly. So um, in the United States, we have one of the highest rates of hysterectomy in the world. In this country, they, if a woman is like over 40, and there's any problem with her uterus, that oh, just take it out. You don't need it anymore. It's only for having babies. That's what I was taught in school. The uterus is only for making babies. It has no pleasure function. That is wrong. That's just not true. Um, as we talked about, the uterus moves up during arousal and during orgasm, it literally kind of bounces up and down. If you have a uterus, you can do a extra special homework assignment and tune in during an orgasm to the two different rhythms. One is gonna be the rapid uh, contraction and release of the pelvic floor muscles, which is kind of like, yay, we're having an orgasm. <laughs> the uterus is like the bass note. The uterus is more like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And if you have the equipment, tune in and you can probably feel the two different rhythms. So for women who've had unnecessary hysterectomies, which I'm gonna say is 90 to 95% of them, um, they're missing the base note. Now they can still have orgasms. They can learn how to use all the rest of their equipment and still have wonderful arousal and orgasms, but they never get the base note back. But they were told it wouldn't affect their sexuality. And for years before I'd put this map together and especially before I understood about the uterus, I would have women who'd had hysterectomies come to me and say, my orgasm feels different. It's not as good. Something's missing. And that is what they're missing. Um, not only that, the, the uterus is like the keystone in the arch of your pelvic organs. So what happens to an arch when you remove the keystone? Well, the bladder or the rectum start collapsing into that space. And so um, there's another reason to hang under your uterus if you can. Now I understand if you've got cancer, take it out, go for it. Absolutely. That is about 5% of hysterectomies. 
Um, the rest, they're taking them out because there's fibroids. Just then take out the fibroids, right? Treat the fibroids, deal with the fibroids um, and so forth. So those are a few examples of why it's important for our health. Um, and I'll just also mention uh, arousal and orgasm is good for everything, every single system in our body. And just like, you know, we should get enough sleep and drink plenty of water and eat healthy. You should have lots of orgasms because it's going to help with your, with your respiratory system, your cardiovascular system. It's like meditation. It helps you alter your state of consciousness. It treats depression, anxiety, right? So it's just, it's good for you to have orgasms. So well, thank you. Well, I feel that is a beautiful place to finish with that. And I have one final, final, final question for you. Um, and I, this is the Sexy Life podcast. So I would love to hear from your perspective, what makes for a sexy life in the broadest of sense? I think it's being in touch with your sexuality because I think our sexuality is our vital life force. And that when we're in touch with it um, by ourselves, whether we're partnered or not, being in touch with our own sexuality is, helps you be a juicy, vital, not to mention attractive, um, empowered person, confident and, uh, and, and happier. So yeah, that's, that's what I think a sexy life is. And it's not about how many people you have sex with, um, it's about your connection to yourself, your relationship with yourself, which is your foundational primary relationship. It's the only one you're going to have. You've had it all your life. You're going to have it. So you're done. Every other relationship has come and gone. <laughs> um, so your sexual relationship with yourself, which includes solo sex, but also how you feel and think about yourself and your sexuality and your body and your genitals and all the stuff we talked about. Yeah, wonderful. Well, thank you so, so much for sharing your incredible experience and wisdom. Um, I so appreciate you coming on the show today. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And I will put your web address, the www.intimateartscenter.com in the show notes. And I know you've got some fantastic blogs, courses, all sorts of things on there. It's a really rich site. And you mentioned that you had a little giveaway as a free online course, um, the Hergasmic Abundance class. So do you want to share a little bit about that? Um, it's about an hour long um, online class. Um, lots of fun uh, visuals, not porny, non-porny erotic visuals and anatomy illustrations. And it focuses on female orgasm, learning how to find your path and expand your path and have bigger, better, more. And it's also for people who partner with women. Um, so you can support your partner in that, but also honestly, a lot of this stuff, like the breathing and the pelvic floor stuff, it applies whatever version of plumbing you have in your body. So that's your giddy. Thank you so much. And I'll put the link for that in the show notes as well. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You are welcome. It is truly my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Love, Sex and Intimacy podcast with me, Sarah Rose Bright. 
I support women and couples across the globe to truly enjoy sex and pleasure and to create or deepen intimate relationships that are passionate and purposeful, happy and healthy, and I'd love to support you. You can book a complimentary call via my website at sarahrosebright.com to find out if my approach is right for you. And check out my website for information about my one-to-one coaching programs and any current workshops, group programs and retreats that I'm running. Wherever and whenever you are listening, wishing you a beautiful day.